Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Fifty years ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the University of Minnesota created a partnership that continues to have a profound impact on economic theory and policy. Several young economics professors were instrumental in forging this partnership and became known as the Four Horsemen of Minnesota Economics. We'll learn more about them, their enduring impact on economics, and an upcoming event on the U of M campus where all four will discuss contemporary economic issues. Art Rolnick is a senior fellow at the U's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He previously worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis as senior vice president and director of research and is an associate economist with the Federal Open Market Committee, the monetary policymaking body for the Federal Reserve System. He's also an expert on the economics of early childhood development and will moderate the Four Horsemen event at the U. We spoke with him in his campus office. Art, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. The Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank and the University of Minnesota are celebrating 50 years of a policy partnership. Tell us more about that partnership. Is this relationship unique amongst these institutions? Actually, it is, uh, and it goes back even more than 40 years. The seeds were planted, if you will, in the early 60s by Walter Heller. Walter Heller, as you may know, was President Kennedy's chief economic advisor and came back when he finished that position to the University of Minnesota. But while he was here early on, again, back in the early 60s, he made a connection with the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and just started informally working with the bank in a variety of different ways. But eventually he uh, recommended a professor here, John Carrican, who ended up being the major policy advisor to the Minneapolis Fed. And John started to bring some of his colleagues to the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. And eventually it bloomed into this 50-year incredible partnership that we have had between the bank and the university. The Federal Reserve System, as you may know, consists of 12 district banks. Minneapolis is in the 9th Federal Reserve District. We were unique in the sense of the partnership. It isn't that other research departments eventually didn't make some connections with uh, various academic institutions, but nothing like what we had here. This, what I'll call a full partnership, ongoing partnership for 50 years. It generated multiple Nobel laureates and an incredible amount of research that was not just academic research, but research that was devoted to understanding public policy and improving public policy. How did the U and the Fed come together in the partnership? I don't want to say there, there was a plan. It sort of organically happened uh, as uh, some small research groups from the U came over to the bank and started working on certain forecasting projects, for example, certain policy issues. And eventually, we at the bank realized we had this incredible potential partner at the U, let's formalize it a little bit more, hiring more students, uh, doing internships, and it just sort of grew and kept growing into what turned out to be the premier organizations in the world on economic public policy. Well, tell us more about the partnership itself. What's the role of the Fed versus the role of the U of M in the partnership? Well, let me put it this way. There's an interaction between public policy and research. Public policy often um, influences the type of research that uh, academics will do. Academic research, in turn, can influence public policy. So in a way, we kind of formalize that um, by having, on an ongoing basis, economists from the University of Minnesota, some of the best in the world, 
to be spending time at the bank, they got exposed to the type of public policy questions like inflation. Should we be using inflation? Is inflation too high? Is it too low? What about interest rates? What about exchange rates? What about equity issues? What about banking, for example? All these issues that, that percolate at the bank on a regular basis, academics were kind of exposed to as they were around the bank. So over lunch, for example, we'd have 30 or 40 economists sitting around and talking about this issue. And it's these sort of, I'll call them intellectual sparks that come out of these conversations that will generate deeper research, trying to answer questions we raise, see if they're good questions, maybe re-examine them. And then we would take that research and develop it and eventually put it out in a form that the general public and particular policymakers can digest. So part of our job at the bank was to translate that research. And the university, on the other hand, their job was to bring some of the best research to these policy issues. So some of it was informal, happened sort of organically, like I said. We never really directed research specifically, very seldom. We just sort of, it emerged based on issues that were... um, just part of the environment. The four horsemen refer to Edward Prescott, Thomas Sargent, Christopher Sims, and Neil Wallace. Why are these four people so influential in the field of economics, and how did they get anointed as the four horsemen? You got to go back to uh, early 1980s. It appeared in a Star Tribune article, and then one appeared in, in St. Paul paper as well. The chairman of the department at the time, Jim Simler, recognized that in his department he had four superstars. They were young. They were starting to make breakthroughs uh, with their research in the way we were thinking about business cycles, inflation, international trade, et cetera. And he just, he labeled them the four horsemen because he figured they were kind of driving a lot of research at the time. He was anticipating, and then three out of four of them got the Nobel Prize years later, and uh, the fourth one probably will uh, will get one eventually. So it was anticipatory in a way. Jim Simler, the chairman, kind of recognized that he had an incredible uh, staff at, at the University of Minnesota. We're talking with Art Rolnick. He's a senior fellow at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He's the moderator of the upcoming event, The Four Horsemen of the Economic Revolution. It's taking place on Thursday, August 22nd at Ted Mann Concert Hall on the U of M campus. Art, what was happening in Minneapolis in the 1970s and 80s, and what role did the Fed play in shaping the economy at that time? What was happening is something called stagflation. Prior to the 70s, we thought there was a relationship between inflation and unemployment. That if we had more inflation, there are some negatives with high inflation, but it would reduce unemployment. That correlation uh, existed internationally. It was the foundation, if you will, of what is known as Keynesian economics. And there was like a trade-off. So if we wanted to reduce unemployment, uh, we could inflate a little bit more. And that was what was in the standard Econ 101 textbooks. And then 1970s come along, and we get lots of inflation, and we get more unemployment, not less. It it fell apart. And so it got some very bright people, in particular a man by the name of Robert Lucas, who got the Nobel Prize in the 90s, uh, going deep down into theory to think about, how do you explain that? What is going, why is there a correlation sometimes and not others? It turned into some different way of thinking about expectations and future expectations. Eventually, it was labeled rational expectations, sort of, I think of it as Abraham Lincoln, saying that we can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that concept got 
mathematically into our models, and it showed that it was very difficult to take advantage of that correlation. In fact, that correlation could disappear if you try to inflate too much and people anticipate it. It doesn't reduce unemployment. It'll actually increase unemployment. And that helped explain, if you will, what happened in the 70s. And that started a revolution in thinking about the general economy and business cycles and the role the Fed should have. And it led many of us to think probably the best thing the Fed could do is to keep inflation low, make it a very credible policy so people will understand that's our job, that probably the best environment the government can create or the Fed can create for an economy is a stable, low inflation rate that's very predictable and keep policy steady. We're still going to have business cycles, but there's not much more we can do with that. So we should not try to anticipate. It's difficult to anticipate a recession anyways, but the best we can do is to keep inflation low. Post-World War II, the United States experienced an amazing economic surge. And uh, that began to falter in the 1970s with the stagflation you mentioned. Was the stagflation somewhat unusual in the economic cycle? Is it something we'd seen before? Was this particular type of stagflation different? Well, the critics of rational expectations and this new view of the economy sort of make that case that it was just a one-off in the 70s and that we would go back to the trade-off and we can go back to Keynesian economics and or what is called neo-Keynesian and we could still take advantage of the, the trade-off, what's known as a Phillips curve, that we could inflate and get unemployment down. But it's interesting today, again, we see very low inflation and very low unemployment, exactly what was predicted back by Bob Lucas and the uh, work that was done at the Minneapolis Fed and the University of Minnesota that argued that maybe the best we can do is just keep inflation low. What was the economics department like at the U of M at the time of the Four Horsemen? What economic theories were popular at that time? And uh, what thinkers and economic models were being studied? Well, the one I've just talked about, rational expectation, there was a lot of controversy over, well, this new theory, thinking about expectations is on average. If on average you can't fool all the people all the time, that was very controversial as to the implications because it seemed to imply that policymakers, the Fed in particular, can't do much about unemployment that, uh, other than keep inflation low. It was very controversial because there was considerable view that it was one-off, as you asked earlier, and then that, that was an unusual period. Um, the other thing that got a lot of attention uh, was work by Chris Sims on forecasting models and came up with a better mousetrap, if you will, for making predictions on, on where the economy is going and how best to implement monetary policy. That also was controversial, though I think that work has stood the test of time as being one of the best statistical ways of forecasting models. So that got a lot of attention. The other thing that got a, a lot of attention is this notion of credibility, that the Fed needs to not keep secret what our rule is or what we're planning on doing over the six months, but let the markets know the markets actually work better and the economy will work better when they know what our rule is going to be, what our objective is going to be. So that notion of credibility and the importance of a credible government policies turned out to be somewhat controversial, but there was a lot of discussion about that research as well. What were some of the big ideas and influential papers produced at the time of the Four Horsemen and how did they affect economic policy? One of the most important ideas that came from Neil Wallace and his colleague, Jack Kerrigan, and I mentioned Jack earlier, who helped really establish the department. In the late 70s, they did a theoretical paper on too big to fail, essentially arguing in a, in a very theoretical paper that 
we've got the incentives wrong that if banks think that but especially large banks think that if they get into trouble, if they get into financial trouble, they'll be bailed out. It sort of heads, if they take a lot of risk and they win, you know, they make a good return and they're bankers of the year. If they get in trouble, they get bailed out. Well, those kind of incentives like that, uh, it's called moral hazard, means they're going to take a lot of risk. That's what the theory said. I would argue it helped predict the uh, SNL crisis, the saving loan crisis that occurred in the 80s. It's exactly what this theory predicted. And then we started to write essays following up on that on it's time to rethink the way we guarantee banks. In particular, we either need more market discipline or we need a lot more capital in these banks so they're less like, less likely to take that kind of risk. Eventually, that research, years later, turned into a book that uh, the president of the bank uh, Gary Stern and uh, Senior Vice President over uh, Supervision and Regulation, Ron Feldman, wrote a book in 2004, Too Big to Fail, and argued now was the time to deal with this problem. Banks were in pretty good shape. It's time to significantly uh, increase either capital requirements or market discipline. They had a number of proposals. But in 2004, they didn't know when there'd be a financial crisis, but the incentives were there. The powers to be... In Washington and New York said, Minneapolis Fed, that's good theory, but bankers wouldn't take that kind of risk. Uh, four years later. Four <laughs> years later, they kind of apologized. Um, <laughs> but I would say that was one. Uh, that's a good example of it's not easy to do this kind of research. It's not necessarily true that all of our research turns into clear policy prescriptions. But there is a good example of the environment we were in with these four horsemen uh, turned into a very important policy position that indeed proved uh, to be right and stood the test of time. How do the economic theories in academia influence the real-world economy, or how do the theoretical economic models make it to the Fed to shape real-world policy? Well, understand, the theoretical model is only good if it can confront real-world observations. So, so, so there's a relationship between the empirical work and the theoretical work. They go together. People often dismiss these mathematical models as irrelevant. They miss the point. The mathematical models give us deep insights in what might be happening in the real world, and then they have to be tested against the real world. So the real world experience affects these models. These models, in turn, help us to look at what data we should be looking at to test them. Like most science, you have a theory, and then you, you go out there and you experiment to see if the theory is right. Often, uh, you reject these theories every once in a while. You accept them, but even when you accept them, there's still more to learn. So there's a constant back and forth between the evidence or the data and the theory. If it's good and if it stands the test of time, then at the Federal Reserve, we viewed our role as marketing this research, if you will, bringing it to the public arena, whether it's at the Federal Open Market Committees in Washington, you know, the Fed meets every six weeks, and our president there would bring some of this research to the table. But we do commentaries, and we publish it in our region magazine, and we have various other forums that we try to get this research out to the general public. How did the four horsemen help raise the profile of the U of M as an institution? You know, once you get a Nobel Prize, <laughs> that alone does it. And, and, then, and then three of them got Nobel Prizes, and it was well understood 
by the profession that the University of Minnesota was one of the best economic departments in the world. I mean, that was known. It was a matter of time that some of these people were going to get Nobel Prizes. But when they actually got the Nobel Prize, it internationally just put us on the map, if you will, more generally, and giving us a lot more credibility, which is terrific. I mean, we're not saying we got it always right, but we think we're doing some of the best research, public policy research in the world. We're talking with Art Rolnick. He's a senior fellow at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He's the moderator of the upcoming event, The Four Horsemen of the Economic Revolution, taking place Thursday, October 22nd at Ted Mann Concert Hall on the University of Minnesota's campus. What is the relationship like between the Fed and the U today? What economic issues are being studied? Well, there are quite a few. And this is, of course, it's been ongoing. Neil Kashkari, the current president of the Minneapolis Fed, uh, went, shortly after he became president, he wanted to dig into equity issues. He wanted to dig into equality, opportunity, recognize the, the major political issue in our country and that we're leaving too many of our children behind when it comes to education. Uh, there's this in, uh, significant gap between the income of the poor and the income of the middle class and rich and wanted to know what economists had to say about it. Now, fortunately, uh, for the past 12 years before President Kashkari came on board, we sort of accidentally got into this issue of early childhood education and achievement gaps, especially here in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota uh, listeners may not know this, but we have the largest achievement gap in the country. That is a significant number of our kids, a number of our kids, especially our kids of color, do not graduate high school. And we got into this research sort of by accident. Uh, former Governor Al Qui and former Mayor of Minneapolis Don Fraser had asked me to take a look at the research in this area. And the research was overwhelming that if we start early with our children, we don't wait till the kindergarten. But we start really at birth, in fact, at prenatal, that if we get kids starting school healthy and ready to learn instead of far behind in language and in emotional skills, if we get them ready, they're much more likely to succeed in school much more likely to graduate high school, get a job, pay taxes, stay off welfare. And the research showed crime rate goes down dramatically. And we argued, this about 15 years ago, that uh, there was a significant public return in doing this. And so we had some answers for Neil Kashkari that early childhood education is one way to get at this problem of intergenerational poverty, this inequality that we're seeing in our economy, and uh, just generally making sure our educational system is working for everybody. And so that is uh, one of the issues today. International issues are, has been a prime issue for the Minneapolis Fed for many years in the University of Minnesota. Issues related to free trade, the dangers of, of trade wars, the understand, better understanding of international currency movements. Uh, so these issues have been around for a long time. I'd say those are some of the major issues we're facing today. Given the trade war situation, are we in somewhat uncharted territory there as well? The impact for Minnesota would seem to be high. We, of course, have a very vibrant soybean industry here. A lot of farmers grow soybeans. And then, of course, we have two Fortune 500 companies who uh, are very much linked to China in terms of the merchandise they carry. What kind of studies are taking place now to look at the potential impact of trade wars on the state and the national economy. So I would say we're in uncharted waters when it comes down to specific businesses and industries, although generally we would say 
Uh, it's going to be very costly to those industries. But the research that I would point to is, uh, in a sense, we're not in uncharted waters. If you go back to 1930, uh, at the beginning of the Great Depression, the U.S. Congress got very nervous about this a recession, and it was a pretty deep recession, and worried about um, losing jobs to foreign countries. And we started passing something. We passed a law called Smoot-Hawley, which was raising trade barriers. And the rest of the world responded, and, and they raised their trade barriers. They raised their, their tariffs. And if you look at the data back then, international trade virtually went to zero. And some of us would argue that that recession, which was a serious recession, was turned into the Great Depression when we passed Smoot-Hawley. That's, that's one of the, not the only, but one of the better explanations of why we got that Great Depression. So a concern today is if these trade wars get expanded, you could have a serious impact on world economy, the U.S. economy and the world economy. I'd say roughly a third of our GDP is generated by international trade. If it gets out of hand, it could be very damaging. You mentioned the studies that have taken place to look at, for example, in Minnesota, the achievement gap. Do you believe economists now are looking beyond just money policy theories and more at social issues to try and create models that will ensure economic equity going forward? Well, one of my mentors was Walter Heller. And Walter Heller, way back when, uh, was looking at uh, social issues as well as issues related to banking and et cetera. So I would argue we've always done that. I think our tools have gotten a little bit better and doing some interdisciplinary work has, has improved our policy. For example, in the early ed area, uh, we look at the neuroscience research that talks about brain development starting at the beginning. We look at the importance working with um, psychologists, the importance of the parenting relationship with a child and how critical that is, especially in the first few years. And then we put dollar values on having these kids succeed. So I think we're doing a better job simply because we, our tools have gotten better. But I think we've always worried about inequity, et cetera. We worry about why some countries are rich and some countries are poor, for example. That, that's been a topic in economics for years. But our tools have gotten better. And I think we're doing a better job of addressing them. And in particular, again, looking in an interdisciplinary way, I think we've made a lot of headway on uh, early childhood education and the importance of those years. Not just the moral importance, but the economic importance. Our political environment today, of, of course, is highly partisan. Looking back at Minnesota's history, there was a period known as the Minnesota Miracle. Time magazine famously had then-Governor Wendell Anderson holding up a walleye on a string, and uh, Minnesota was the, the state that works. Do you think something like a Minnesota miracle could come about today and maybe bridge some of the partisan divides and help us pave a way to a, a more prosperous and equitable economic future? So let me say something about the Minnesota miracle before I get into the question of could it bridge a gap uh, or a partisan gap. We actually did a study on Minnesota's economy, and we went back to 1920. This is at the Minneapolis Fed. This is uh, an economist. The author was Terry Fitzgerald. And he had data from 1920 to the year 2000. And it's very interesting. If you go back to the 1920s, Minnesota economy was average at best, maybe a little below average as an economy. In the 50s, starting in the 50s, we start to outperform the nation. And by the year 2000, we were one of the top economies in the country. In fact, one of the top economies in the world. So... You can view that as the economic miracle, right? So what happened? And so we started to dig into a, a number of explanations, and the one that popped out 
very clear. Sometime in the 50s, and I can't, I don't know the history enough, the economic history enough to tell you why, but the state of Minnesota, on a per capita basis, relative to other states, started to spend a significant amount, significantly more amount of money on education. Uh, so it's not the GI Bill. This is beyond the GI Bill. Minnesota starts to invest in our human capital in education. And year after year, we start to do better economically. And in the year 2000, when we looked at these quality of our workforce, our women uh, were number one with high school degrees. Overall, we were a very well-educated economy that worked hard. We argued in that article, Terry, Terry Fitzgerald argued in that article, that probably the best explanation for the Minnesota miracle is we, this state, starting in the 50s, started to invest in human capital, in individual education. Uh, and I would argue that's probably is the best explanation for why we do as well as we do. In terms of per capita Fortune 500 companies, we're number one or two in the country. Uh, why is that? Why do we have all these great Fortune 500 companies? It ain't the weather. Uh, uh, and I don't think it's the, 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 the Vikings record. <laughs> you know, if you ask companies why they want to be here, it's because of the workforce. The companies I know, the surveys that I know, workforce, quality of workforce matters a lot. So how do you build an economy like this? Educate your kids, train your workers. We, we seem to be setting an example. And I think that's the case for the Minnesota miracle. And going forward, we still have a highly educated workforce. However, as I mentioned earlier, we have um, this achievement gap, which is if there's one thing that threatens our economy, it's that a high percentage of our poverty kids are not finishing high school. That's a serious threat. So if we want to keep this, in, uh, this miracle going, we better make sure we educate our kids. Did the 2008 Great Recession affect today's students who are studying economics? Specifically, I'm thinking about the way they view economics because of the banking crisis that occurred a decade ago. Do they have perhaps a, a different view of economic policy than students who preceded them? Could be. I mean, it came as a big shock even to us. I mean, we, we were very concerned about the too big to fail and the amount of moral hazard, as you will. Uh, and this banking crisis, we think, came about because Congress relaxed all these rules, all the regulations for buying homes. It was an environment where these, these financial institutions could take a lot of risk and be backed by government guarantees. What's interesting about that is it's a great example of what these students were learning about the potential for a crisis. Here was an example where it actually happened. So I think it makes economics more real world, if you will. It's not just theory. Uh, I think that's an, a good lesson, and I think students today use it that way, that recognize that uh, economics may have something to say about the real world. It's not just these mathematical models that, that are esoteric and that we're just, you know, just playing uh, theoretical games. Again, like I said earlier, this theory was very predictive, and in, indeed, in, in a way, it did predict this crisis. So I think, as a student of economics, I think it's a very useful example of why economics is very relevant. Art Rolnick is a senior fellow at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He is the moderator of the upcoming event, The Four Horsemen of the Economic Revolution, taking place Thursday, August 22nd at Ted Mann Concert Hall. More information can be found at umn.edu slash events, and we also have a link on our website. Art, thank you so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for the opportunity. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. In the late 1990s, a new genre of television emerged called reality TV. 
Over the years, many reality TV shows have achieved great rating success, such as Survivor, American Idol, and Big Brother. Prior to his election as president, Donald Trump had his own reality TV show called The Apprentice. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, a University of Minnesota expert on reality TV joins us to discuss the norms, prejudices, and values that the genre promotes and the similarities between reality TV shows and the way the current White House operates. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.